Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 6, Session 2. Welcome um, back to Vaccine Priorities, Navigating Eligibility and Access in the Setting of an Outbreak. So as we wait to run new cases popping up across the state to ground, lockdown 5.0 settings remain. As our CHO uh, described earlier in the week, this outbreak has touched all corners of the state with cases in Phillip Island, Bakish Marsh, Barwon Heads and Mildura, in addition to metropolitan Melbourne. And we're now becoming acquainted with the transmission dynamics of the Delta variant, which is behaving in different ways than we've experienced in previous strains. And so it turns out that it really was a race to vaccinate the population after all. But how do we do this as a collective and manage this in a strategic way, given that we're operating in a complex system with supply constraints? So questions we're going to be asking this morning is how do we continue to balance Pfizer supply and demand? How do we navigate the Pfizer eligibility advice from both Commonwealth and state? And do GPs have any discretion when it comes to providing doses, particularly in the setting of an outbreak? Which groups are facing access barriers and how can we open priority access pathways in primary care? And how do we manage our AZ provision and dosing intervals in the context of an outbreak? So our agenda for today. Karen Ahrens is coming to give us the Grampian um, Public Health Update. She's a GP specialist with the Grampians Public Health Unit. Uh, So thank you for coming to bring us this update on where we're at at this time. Kate Graham will provide uh, the Health Pathways Update. um, And Aaron Block returns to uh, with us today, uh, having been bumped from last week's program because of an outbreak. Um, We'll we'll pick up that didactic on um, the some of the. complications of vaccines so that we can really finesse our communication with patients, particularly with the under 40s and also thinking about those who um, might be worried about Pfizer and the myocarditis. Linda Govan uh, will give us an update at the end and and give us a, uh, I guess, progress check on how we're doing with some of those uh, vulnerable groups. So I will hand over to you, Karen Ahrens. Thank you. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everyone. I'm just here to give a quick update on um, the current state of play. So as you probably know, yesterday we had 22 new cases in Victoria, um, of which um, 16 were fully isolated. And whilst the 22 seems like an increase in number and seems concerning, the percentage of those cases that are fully in isolation is continuing to increase. So that's really exciting and very encouraging. Um, we've got a total active number of cases in Victoria of 118 um, and about 100, 380 exposure sites and rising. And whilst that number seems like an enormous number, I actually think it's an exciting thing, the more numbers, because it actually means we're capturing things really early. So that's good. Um, and Victorians are going crazy testing because there was um, over 59,000 tests yesterday. Um, in, in our region, we're managing about six exposure sites, not all currently in our region at the moment, but the ones of interest are Balan, Witchproof, and we have involvement in the Bacchus Marsh situation. Um, you're probably all aware of those three. So um, the Balan one, um, our involvement was quite rapidly requiring to put up pop-up testings and um, uh, get rapid testing on anyone who'd been in sensitive settings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we'd had quite a lot to do with that, um, and that seems to have settled down significantly. And we've had no positive cases come out of that one, so that's good news. Um, the witchy proof one similarly hasn't been too concerning, but um, that's another one to keep an eye on. Um, and back as much because it's an education setting, we've had a little bit to do from the peripheries, particularly with the bus lines. Um, and there are some new cases coming out of that each day. Most of them are completely contained. So that's again, uh, been quite exciting and reassuring. So 
That's probably where we're up to in our region at the moment. Bianca, thanks. All right. Thank you, Karen. Over to you, Kate. Morning, everyone. It has been a pretty eventful week since last week. So I think um, one of the major things that um, has occurred during the past week is the fact that um, there have been so many regional um, close contacts required to isolate. A lot of that has been because of um, some of the bigger exposure sites, um, but we are still seeing people sort of isolating as primary or um, indeed as secondary contacts in our region. So I think one of the key things that um, we've been working on updating this week in Health Pathways and that we've been working on a bit in practice as well is really um, getting down to sort of what that contact management means. And I think um, the public health teams are doing an amazing job of getting into in touch with sort of all the primary close contacts that they know about. Um, but I think where we sort of find that we may be involved as general practitioners is that first sort of point of call um, or a phone question from people who may have been at an exposure site, may not have registered as a um, like with their QR code or are uncertain if they were at the exposure site or uncertain as to what to do. We've also still got a number of those return travellers from New South Wales who came in sort of at the end of school holidays who are required to isolate. Um, and I think the other thing that's really important is if you're looking at getting contacts, um, getting in contact with you, is looking at that secondary close contact um, information. And sort of if you know that they have secondary close contacts who are working in vulnerable areas or things like that, having a chat um, to the public health teams at that point just to get some really clear advice as to who needs to isolate for how long, um, particularly for that secondary close contact cohort. Um, so in terms of vaccine updates, it's um, you know, always sort of an issue navigating what's happening. Um, I think the major thing um, that people probably need to be sort of thinking about at the moment is really prioritising um, the priority groups. So at the moment, the key Commonwealth priority is the aged care workforce. So having some practice procedures in place um, to just really be able to enhance the, that access and bookings and having a way that if you do have patients who need to access those priority appointments through general practice or through a Commonwealth vaccination centre that you've got a way that um, even when you've got full books, maybe it's involving them on a wait list or um, sort of the priority phone call if there's cancellations. Um, I think having that no wrong door for questions as well, making sure that, you know, you may not be able to offer what somebody needs, but enhancing that access um, to other locations. So where this is going to become key, and we're going to do a bit on this today, is really the state and Commonwealth differences in terms of who can be vaccinated and where. And it's particularly in that group under 39, um, as well as some of the key groups who are eligible for Pfizer at any age. Um, so that's probably all that we've been focusing on this week. Because now we're going to head over to um, Aaron Block and I'm hoping we could weave this into the conversation. So thank you for joining us this morning, Aaron. Over to you for um, the didactic. 
My pleasure. I hope uh, I don't have any food in my mouth. Um, so. oh, good morning. Yeah, sorry, we've caught you off guard. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'm just going to share my screen and take you on a little bit of a tour of my web browser. And then um, I've sent to Gemma a list of the links I've got here because in some ways I think it's it's better to show you guys where to find information rather than presenting a PowerPoint um, to some extent. And also I haven't had time as well. Um, all right, so I'm going to share my screen. Hopefully that'll work. <clears throat> First of all, now can you guys see my web browser? Yes. Okay, so this is going to that question about um, vaccinated people. So, look, I find Twitter to be a really helpful source of information. Um, that being said, you have to kind of learn to block out some of the horrible Murdoch journalist trolls who are always putting down Victoria and so on. Um I can see this is being recorded. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, uh, so this guy, Anthony McCarley, is a data guy who does um, COVID Live. He puts out all sorts of fantastic data all the time. He actually does it part-time. He's got a full-time job. Pretty incredible, really. So this goes to our question last week. Um, of those vaccinated or, or with infected, um, so 78 hospitalised, 64 not vaccinated, 88 partial, 5 fully vaccinated, uh, 23 in ICU, 21 not vaccinated, two partial and got a table here. Um, and that comes from this um, COVID surveillance report that the New South, New South Wales Health has put out. And then similarly, there's another tweet which is referencing the same data from Casey Briggs, who I'm sure you're all familiar with. Um, I'm, I'm an avid Twitter person. I'm keen to hear how many, of other, how many other Echo participants are into Twitter and whether you're getting this kind of information because it was something that you sent to me during the week, Aaron. I was able to access it straight away, but it's good to see you taking us on a tour. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so here we can see so it's referencing the same data. 4th to 10th of July, 92% had received no doses of a COVID vaccine. So we talked about it in general terms last week, but here are some sort of um, harder figures to back that up. Now, this is um, not related to that question, but this guy is another one of these data people who I think we should recruit to the health department because he's incredible, DB Raven. And this is a fantastic map that came out last night, just in terms of, I guess, from a public health perspective. So at the time of the lockdown, the, so he's labelled green were the known cases when we went into lockdown. Yellow were those who had already acquired infection that we found out subsequently, but were not yet known. And orange, it's not quite sure. So look at this map and you can see that it just, it's such a beautiful demonstration. So we went into lockdown here. All those people go, why would you go into lockdown for five cases? Look at what was out there that we didn't know about. It's pretty kind of like it, a picture says a thousand words, doesn't it? So um really really interesting um all right so um what i want to talk to you guys today about is a little bit on tts and a little bit on myocarditis and i know callum's spoken to you about tts with regards to sort of diagnosing it in the condition i want to talk to you a little bit about the the risks so some of the more recent numbers and kind of an approach to how you have those discussions um with patients. Now, I don't want to sort of tell you guys to suck eggs as it were. So I'm sure this is really well within your specialty area about how you talk to your patients um, with regard to these decisions. But one thing that I've certainly found in my experience, you know, I've spent a lot of time this year talking to people about getting the vaccine and particularly at the start of the year when um, 
we were giving AstraZeneca and Pfizer and there was a lot of hesitancy amongst young healthcare workers to AstraZeneca, which was sort of then, you know, I guess um, somewhat vindicated for them in that the age restrictions were changed. And my solid belief is that when someone comes to see you, they're going to have a sort of, you'll get a sense of, of what they want and what, what, what they're sort of, you know, they're coming to you with questions, but they're going to have a sort of inherent feeling. And, and I think it's up to you to kind of give them the information so that they can make an informed decision and in some ways validate, you know, their decision, if that makes sense. Obviously not if they come in and say, oh, is COVID going to, you know, turn me into a radioactive person, the vaccine, but um, they're all going to have a sense of how they interpret the risk and what they feel comfortable with. So, for example, um, you may have, you know, a 49-year-old who's really, really anxious about that clotting risk and they're just looking to you to talk it through and maybe their decision is they want to wait until they're 50 and get Pfizer because they're just terrified about TTS and that's okay. Similarly, if you've got a 34-year-old coming to see you, they're probably going to be someone who's pretty motivated already to have the vaccine and they just want to talk you through the risks one more time. That's sort of what they have to do and they really want to get it. So I think it's about giving that tailored advice and just getting a sense of what the person you're with um, is comfortable with. So in terms of kind of how do we get to their, that decision, so I'll take you through a few pages and some, and some um, figures and links. So this one is um, uh, one of the statements um, from Atagi uh, looking at revised recommendations on the use of COVID-19. And this table particularly I've got here because it gives you the breakdown of the TTS risk by age group. And I haven't found this to be that easy to find. So as I said, these links are all in a Word document, which I've sent to Gemma, who will send around to you guys, I hope. So this is the first thing that's quite handy in terms of looking at the different ages and being able to give them a relatively accurate and up-to-date. This is in June, so it may have changed a little bit, figure of what the risk is. So... And you can see it's moved around a lot since this um, condition first uh, was diagnosed or, or became known earlier in the year. But we can see under 50, about three per 100,000. And then interestingly, um, over sort of, you know, 80, we're getting up to about two per 100,000. So it's actually not that, uh, that much less common in older age groups. However, as we continue through, um, what we know is that the risk of harm from COVID is far higher in these older age groups. Just out of curiosity, have, has everyone seen this document now that I'm showing you? So this one is uh, weighing up the potential benefits and risks of harm from COVID-19. Anyone want to weigh in? Anyone seen this document or read this document? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Sarah. And I think, um, uh, tell us if you haven't, um, I, I, I'm hoping you guys have been using some of these aid memoirs because they're very helpful, aren't they? These, not aid memoirs, what do you call graphics, graphic education tools? Yeah. So I, I just kind of, with the caveat that these numbers have changed. So this was put out quite a while ago. So at this point, you can see it was giving a risk of one per 100,000 for clots when we now know it's about three. And similarly here for those um, over sort of 60s, it was more like you know, 1.5 and then getting up to 1.9. These initially were come out, uh, were, were produced by a group called the Brighton um, Collaborative in England, and they were used to inform their decisions. Um, and they initially started with a cutoff of 30 and then changed to 40. And basically what this is doing is trying to compare like for like in terms of harms from ICU 
um, admission from COVID versus these blood clots. And, and basically, I think it's a, the community just often, the questions I've seen, they don't really understand. They say, why are you giving under over 40s the dangerous vaccine? You know, why are you, why are you kind of throwing older people under the bus? And I think this is a nice demonstration to show people why the age cutoffs are made where they are. And, and they are to some extent arbitrary, but it's a cutoff of where the risk benefit um, uh, is, is quite clear. So um, this is during the first wave based on uh, in, in um, Australia in 2020, in sort of March, April 2020. And then here you can see um, during around during Victoria's second wave, and it just becomes so obvious that the harm from COVID really outweighs the risk from this vaccine. So I think this is a really nice thing. You can show your patients potentially, you know, it's easy enough to understand what to explain. Um, going back a step now, this is the other number that I sometimes find hard to find. So I've got it here and it's in the links and that's about the second doses. So that's another question that's coming through um, quite frequently. I've had my first dose of AstraZeneca. What's my risk of getting TTS in the second dose? What are my options, et cetera? Um, I think we'll talk about heterologous um, vaccine dosing in the future. But uh, at the moment, unfortunately, it's not something that can be offered on a sort of choice basis. It's only if you have a significant adverse event um, following your first um, vaccine. But you can see here, so the risk of um, TTS as per some UK data from 9 million um, K, uh, doses is 15 out of those 9 million doses, so 1.7 cases per million. So quite rare compared to, say, 3 per 100,000 for those under 50. First dose, we're looking at um, 1.7 cases per million doses. So hopefully that's relatively um, reassuring. Um, at this point, I might just show you a couple of graphics, and I think it's interesting in terms of the way the media have... Um, looked at this and, and, you know, you've heard some people sort of say, oh, well, you're more likely to be struck by lightning and those sorts of things. I mean, I'd be interested in the chat just if people use those kind of things talking to their patients and whether they find them healthy, uh, sorry, helpful. Um, can everyone see this picture I've got up here of this? Yeah. Yeah. So this one's not bad um, because you've got a spectrum all the way through from the vaccine to COVID infection. But I actually find these in between talking about birth control pill and smoking, I find them really, really unhelpful for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I don't think it's helpful to compare this vaccine to something like the birth control pill or the risk of, a, of harm from driving or, or lightning, because if you put yourself in the shoes of someone getting the vaccine, they feel like they don't have a choice when they drive, you know? Um, they feel like they, they take their oral contraceptive pill because they need it for contraception, whereas when they look at the vaccine, they're going, well, I've got one vaccine that won't provide me this risk and one that, that does. So it's kind of irrelevant you telling me this risk compared to flying a plane or getting hit by lightning. The other reason I'm not such a fan of this is because I think one of the errors we've made in our communication is comparing it to all sorts of things with typical um, thromboses like birth control or smoking, which cause more typical thrombosis, when in fact this is an idiosyncratic immune-mediated condition that has nothing to do with, you know, DVT, factor five blade and all that sort of thing. So the great majority of the population who do have these traditional history of clotting or clotting risk factors actually are not at risk of this condition. So that's kind of, I think, a miscommunication that we as a medical community have done, unfortunately. This graphic I think is really good. And again, the numbers are probably out of date. 
Um, it comes from Margie Danchen, who well, actually she's got it from somewhere else, actually, but you might have seen her. She's a very good communicator. And it just looks at some of the numbers compared to, say, first of all, background numbers of these conditions um, to see that the, the numbers that we're getting are, are pretty low and, and they're not that far away from the background. And then looking at the numbers of these kind of clots and harms you get after COVID. And I think that's probably the most significant thing to say is that, you know, if you do get infected by COVID, your risk of one of these kind of clots is essentially the same or more. Um, as well as obviously hospitalisation and death. So to my mind, I think that's kind of a more useful um, risk framework uh, to work off. I haven't sent you this because I think these numbers, unfortunately, now are quite out of date. But just conceptually, I think that's a better risk communication tool to say, rather than, you know, you're more likely to be hit by lightning, which you have no control over, to mm -hmm. say COVID itself, which you'll be protected from, will much more likely cause harmful clotting and death than this vaccine. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. Um, I'm going to hand over to you now, Linda Govan. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everyone. Um, in regards to eligibility, I just put a couple of the Commonwealth links in, in the chat. I find them they're really helpful in providing guidance, but I absolutely acknowledge that it is complicated and um yeah, recommend contacting us or the public health units if you need, if you can't find uh, an eligibility criteria in there from the Commonwealth's perspective. Um, in regards to just a quick update, PPE, we've got uh, an increased provision because of the um, announcement of the hotspots in the Moorabool, Greater Geelong, Surf Coast and Queenscliff Shires. So we've been proactively in touch with practices at the moment giving um, or providing extra PPE, but if you do need more, you can order online or you can contact your practice facilitator or you can contact us via our new email down the bottom there. Um, in regards to the Pfizer rollout, we've got, I think by tomorrow, there'll be another 13 practices um, confirmed for the for August and they've been identified in regards to, again, access gaps in, in the region, so practices that are further away from the, the main hubs. So we should see that information come out tomorrow. Again, if you're interested in being involved in Pfizer, um, or AstraZeneca if you're not already, the EOI remains open and contact us via our email address at the bottom of the screen. The key um, activity that's keeping us busy at the moment is around um, making sure there's uh, access to Pfizer for the aged care staff, um, residential aged care staff. So we've been working um, with the Commonwealth on looking at um, that or they're providing another resource for um for access to the vaccine so we'll have some more information about that but at the moment we're doing a lot of coordination and facilitation between the current um, resources that we have available to us whether that's a public health unit we've got epic in ocean grove doing in reach to resident residential aged care i've got some gps doing some in reach as well so it's been just a, a really big process trying to um, speed up that for the staff because by mid-September 17th um, all RAC staff need to have had at least one vaccination. Uh, finally we're doing a, a pulse check with practices as well so all practices will be just having a check-in with uh, by our practice facilitators to make sure or just to find out what the pressure points are and and what are the information needs so uh, yeah you'll be hearing from us in that way as well. Uh, in regards to disability we have we we have completed the requirement or not the requirement what we were doing with um via the commonwealth for the small list of of people living in supported 
accommodation, disability accommodation over 50. Um, but again, if you've got patients that uh, you, who are not vaccinated and they fall into that category, let us know and we can help facilitate um, access if that's, a, if that's a problem. And I think that's probably about it. Thanks, Bianca. Great. Thanks, Linda. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. Lovely to see some journal club happening in the chat and we might get all those articles um, put together and into a list and perhaps, Aaron, um, you know, maybe journal club might be something that we could do in the future. It'd be nice to think about how do we synthesise all this information. There's so much out there and it'd be great to discuss some of this at Project Echo. So thank you so much. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.